0: Welcome to Dallas. we're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. So I had a pretty dramatic story I was going to start with this morning. And instead, I felt God lead me to this prayer, and I'm going to lead you in praying this as we begin this Christmas season. Uh, I think we could pray this any time of the year, and i 'm going to kneel i 'm going to just lower myself here. I do this often in just my own private prayer to try to get lower before this great God who you sometimes just you, you're so aware of how unworthy I am to serve you, to know you, to be part of your plan and this is the prayer i 'm going to invite you to make just in your own words in the days and weeks ahead and Uh, this will not be the last time we hear this prayer together. Father God, it is incredibly sad that uncertainty and ignorance about your reality and your presence defines so many people in our world. Tragically, I believe it describes so many who attend your churches week after week uncertainty and ignorance about your reality and your presence. Engulf us at Dulles, God, in your reality and in your presence. May we become obsessed with the reality and presence of Jesus in every part of our lives. Awaken us to who you actually are and what you are actually doing in our world, and may this awakening begin with me. This is our heart, God, that you would become so real in our work, in our relationships, in our challenges, in the exciting moments of life, that your presence would be the center of our existence. Amen. Okay, to begin this Christmas season, I'm going to just start at Bryce Ski Mountain. I, as a high schooler, junior and senior in high school, probably skied 15 times at Bryce. Uh, I learned how to ski there. It's about an hour, hour and a half south of where I grew up in Winchester, in the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, one night on a ski lift next to a friend named Curtis, he tells me a story that sounded like some kind of epic legend and yet he told it with such detail, it really sounded true. He, he told it as a true story. Uh, I did some work leading up to this message. I, I went online to try to find some news article from the late 70s or early 80s about this. Couldn't find anything. So it is possible that this story is true. Okay. He tells me on the ski lift that years earlier there on that mountain at Bryce Mountain... One night in the late 70s, early 80s, I'm in, you know, this is, this is probably 1988, 89 when this happened. He's telling me that not too long ago, the mountain was really crowded with skiers. The ski lift was full of people going up the ski lift on the mountain. And in an instant, the entire mountain was thrown into darkness. Uh, everything went completely dark in one second. And he tells me later in the story, it was because of a car accident, a car hit a telephone power pole and the whole area just went dark for, I don't know, let's say he said three hours for for a while. And he's describing the sounds from the chairlift in utter darkness of people skiing off the trails into the trees, into the woods. And he said, it, you know, there was no ambient light. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no like light in the sky from a nearby town. Apparently, there was no. It was cloud cloud cover, I guess. There was no moon. It was black, dark, dark. And people decided, in, after 15 minutes, after 30 minutes, 45 minutes, to descend the mountain on their own. <laughs> Uh, some took their skis off and, and walked carefully down the mountain. Some tried to ski down the mountain in the dark. And he said you could hear people skiing into the woods. And apparently there were so many broken limbs and, and, and um, legs and arms that the ambulance line that, that ended up later that evening in front of the lodge just picking up more people. Uh, some people on the lifts, he said, had forgotten because they weren't really paying attention to how close they were in the chairlift to the ground, after swinging in the dark for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they decided to jump off the ski lift, (laughs) and some of them were injured, and you know, I'm, I'm laughing, it's not funny, it kind of is, but it's not supposed to be, but it sort of is, and he's describing how people are trying to rescue others in the dark, and even themselves, by just Traversing the door. It just sounds like a bad movie. And I wonder what you would do. You know, every time I skied at Bryce since then, I, I think of this story every single time. Like, what would I do just in an instant of darkness? What would you do? Would you just sit in the cold, on the snow, for an hour, for a couple of hours, waiting to be... Would you try to rescue others? Would you try to save yourself... You know, in the Christmas season, of all the the symbols at Christmas, of all the traditions, the the spiritual truths, and there are many, the, the first indication of Christmas are the Christmas lights. And our family talks about this every year because it's become important to us that Christmas lights happen to be shining. You know, our house is filled with Christmas light. Christmas lights, our neighborhoods, our communities. We do this everywhere during the darkest time of the year. And when Christmas emerged, when the traditions of Christmas emerged in the Mediterranean region hundreds of years ago in in Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere was the same. During the darkest weeks, this week, next week, the week following are the darkest three weeks of our year. And yet we have this emergence of just light, color, this whimsical season of light. But more important than this is the symbol that Christmas lights are should be and we often don't think of it. There are many symbols during Christmas and traditions of the spiritual truths of the Christmas story. And light, the emergence of light is obviously when we think about it it's 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 true to the Christmas story. An example is gift giving. Gift giving emerged as a symbol as a a a point to God is giver. God so loved the world. He gave what was most important to him, his only son. And so there are many traditions of all the carols and songs and decorations and family traditions and church traditions. As we'll gather here on Christmas Eve, of all the symbols during the Christmas season that point to spiritual truth You really cannot grasp any of them. You and I really can't begin to worship and understand and grasp all the truths at Christmas until we grasp the first one. And the first truth of the Christmas season is our world is dark. We live in a dark world. And listen, there's so many good things about life and there's so many images of God and we still see, even in broken human beings, we see glimpses of the image of God. We were made in his image. We have moments and even places of beauty that point to the creativity of God and the beauty of God and we, we, we celebrate and we give thanks because of the good in our life lives and yet it's inescapable that we live in a dark world. And this is the world that Jesus chose to come into. And until we grasp, people ask me when we, uh, coffees and so many conversations, it's just constant. It's a ubiquitous question uh, throughout my year, throughout my week. It's a constant, constant question. What's wrong with our world? If God is so good, why isn't there more good? Brad, why is the news? Why? And what I keep trying, and we, we, we repeat this mantra here at Dulles intentionally because we're trying to define what what humans are craving to understand and it's why we put so much passion into our politics and we're so vocal and passionate about who's wrong or who shouldn't be elected and who should be we're putting faith in people and in various movements and in technology and innovations because we're trying to solve what's wrong what's broken we innately know this world is broken and I'm, I'm constantly trying to steer people back to this first truth, this first concept, the original Christmas story, and that is that our, our world is broken. Hurt people. Hurt people. There's this perpetual experience among humans. We have things that just seem so ridiculous in a context like this on Sunday to talk about bullying or to talk about racism. It's like, what's wrong with humanity? And you would think in the 21st century, we are so advanced. How do we still struggle with neighborhood violence? And with, you know, Elon Musk is, has this notion that when we start over on Mars, and there's habitat communities, NASA just this week awarded 57 million to a, a, a company called Icon in Austin, Texas, that's going to build the first moon habitats, the lunar habitats. And there's going to be greenery and there's multiple floors where the plants can grow up. So, you know, through the multiple floors and people will see images of earth and all of these amazing concepts. And I follow this. I love following innovation and technology. But this concept that we're going to start over on another celestial being and there will be no murder. There'll be no envy. We're going to do humanity correctly. It's just so naive, even of smart geniuses like Elon Musk. The first spiritual truth of Christmas is humanity is broken. And we are now in this state of darkness. And we cannot illuminate, we cannot solve the problems, even though we're trying. And even in 2022 and now already 2024... And we're talking about election, the, the presidential election 2028. We're looking past two, yet again, older white men running in two years to when will somebody... I mean, the, the, the debates just fill our week because we're trying to solve what's wrong, what we see wrong in the way bosses mistreat employees or take advantage or the way family members can hurt one another. There's something intrinsically wrong. And yet, there's something arrogant within humans and within each generation that says, We're gonna do it right. I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna lead this company differently. My generation is going to solve the problems of the world. I mean, it's. And when you actually humble yourself beneath this first spiritual truth of Christmas, the actual Christmas story, It allows you to encounter, to to experience the other realities of God, creator, coming to this earth, living and making his dwelling here, walking among us in our darkness, in our brokenness, taking our brokenness on himself. I think for so many people, church is just this, this place you just go to try to hear encouraging thoughts. Hopefully the songs will encourage. Hopefully the pastor will say something that, that gives me energy for my work week. And we can never begin walking in the presence of God who came to this world because we, never, we, we just don't accept the starting place that our world is broken. Humans are broken. Humans are broken. We, in our selfishness, invited darkness. And something outside of ourselves must happen. And this takes us to Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah, one of the Old Testament voices who's foretelling the coming of the one who can make whole and who can heal, says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice what this does not say. The humanism, our tendency towards humanistic thinking, or we can figure this out, or we can innovate enough to actually begin healing our planet. This humanistic thinking tends to hear this, As for from within the earth, a light has emerged. From the world, a light has sprung. That's not what Isaiah says. He's talking about an outside source is coming. Something outside of humanity, something outside of the perpetual darkness is needed and is coming. On the world, a light has dawned. Then we get to the New Testament. Jesus, it's arguably Jesus' closest friend, closest disciple, John, writes one of the the four gospel accounts. It's remarkable that we have four in history in the ancient world. if If you got one good biography of an emperor, I mean, that was so credible that someone would record details. One writer records the events of of an emperor or a leader's life, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. And in John's account, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot push back this light. It has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone, John says, is coming into the world. And this word became flesh, the word, the voice of God, the message of God, the hope of God, the direction, the level-setting truth of God, the the words of God himself became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this, this fleshly spokesperson of God, God himself, is described repeatedly, constantly as the light that's going to shatter and pierce the darkness of humanity. In Matthew 4, Matthew, who writes the first gospel account, where the first letter in, in the New Testament, of course, in chapter 4, he, he, he quotes Isaiah. A light is coming. He's, he's here. I'm writing about him. Those who live in darkness, humans, have seen a great light. So I am going to stay in Matthew, and I want to unpack something here in the next few minutes. Something remarkable Matthew does at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew writes what is in our scriptures as the first New Testament book, the first account of the life of Jesus, and it's staggering the way Matthew begins his accounts of the life of Jesus. This used to frustrate me. I used to find scripture boring because the way Matthew starts the New Testament, it, it just seemed like, man, this is, what in the world? Why would you start supposedly the greatest story in human history with a genealogy? What Matthew does not do is start with language of his day that would be the equivalent of once upon a time or some kind of mythical language or happily ever after. That's not Matthew's language at all. In fact, it's the opposite. He starts with a genealogy, this historical family lineage list. And growing up in the church, I would see this list every once in a while, every few Christmases, the pastor would, would refer to those lists, God forbid, read the whole genealogy. That's just like, oh, God, get me out of here. When, you know, f- one o'clock football kickoff could not get here fast enough. You know, it's just, he starts with this ancestral list. I, I had the privilege of pastoring a, a man, a uh, Many years ago, um, I, I feel comfortable telling the story. He, th- this was not only long ago that this happened, but then he, a couple years later, moved out of the area. His work, his work took him um, somewhere else. He, he gave me a heads up and said, hey, Brad, um, I've got a particularly stressful work project coming up this weekend. Would you please just have me and my family? I can't really talk about it in detail with my family. And I I knew that he had a very classified job. I knew some details about what he did, but uh, I I, I committed to praying for him that weekend. And then I think it was Sunday night, maybe Monday, early in the week. Brad, I I, I really could use some time with you. So we got together early in the week for coffee. And he says, so um, I can't really speak openly about this. You are listed as a confidant, as my pastor, and I need to process some that happened. I... uh, At zero, dark, whatever, (laughs) uh, let's say 2.30 a.m., you know, Friday night, Saturday night, I was rappelling out of a helicopter onto a rooftop in some faraway corner of planet Earth to extract several people out of a building. And uh, under the cover of night, in the darkness of night, we successfully flew them away to safety. And I'm like, I feel like I'm talking to James Bond right now. You know, it's like this is like out of a Mission Impossible movie. Like, and he's like, Yeah, this just happened 24 hours ago, and now, I'm... and he needed to just process some things, you know, uh, with his pastor. And you know what? He did not. He did not start this story with, you know, Brad. So here's here's how I'm going to start the story. So, my great 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 grandfather was born on a, on a farm, and 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 he met this woman and. He just got to the action of the story and the crisis and some of the, you know. You know, I'll just throw this out to you. If you have some kind of dramatic story like this and you've got a small audience, your pastor or just some friends or, you know, you need to process this. Some, you know, middle of the night and it's a rescue mission and we're trying to. Are you going to start the story with so my story begins 600 years ago when my great-great-great-great-grandfather in Belgium met a young woman. And, you know, like, your audience is going to sit there at coffee. Like, what? I thought this was a dramatic story. Like, what? Were you? It, it, it's just, it's almost unthinkable to me, growing up as a kid in church, that Matthew begins this remarkable telling of God's arrival on earth with this long list of grandparents. What Matthew's not doing, is beginning with this this whimsical, fantasy-like, wouldn't-it-be-nice kind of language. He starts with what historians often begin with, a credible list that places in time and space, naming people from villages where you could actually go and travel and meet ancestors of the people named in this list. This is a... This is a practice of historical credibility. You are inviting your readers and your audience to go research this. We know Luke actually does. Luke says, I've researched, I've traveled to learn more of the detail, eyewitness account stories of the life of Jesus. That's what a genealogy does. It it places Jesus as a real person in history. And it's something about this genealogy, this list. There's so many things you could say about this, just what seems like. And as a kid, it was like just these names that meant nothing. And I want to take one example here in our last few minutes together to look at a remarkable truth that Matthew so intentionally gives us in telling us the kind of God that would come into our dark world, into our anxieties and worries into the violence of this world, into the selfishness and narcissism of our world, into the financial lack of integrity and the way people can take advantage of one another. That kind of darkness, that kind of world, is the world that our God chose to come into. And it is no mistake that Matthew writes the genealogy the way he does and includes certain people that he did not have to. In fact, he broke precedents genealogies hardly ever mentioned a woman. It's unthinkable. You know, we've recently, in our history here in America, we've advanced, you know, it seems almost ancient to us to think of women not being able to vote. I mean, that's a very recent occurrence. In Matthew's day, in first century Palestine, Judea, women had no credible voice in society. They, They couldn't be eyewitnesses. Their voice had no uh, bearing in a court of law. Women were almost a different class of human than men. And Jesus, of course, invites women to be his followers. And and the Pharisees are taking issue with how progressive Jesus is. You're including women? Women? Women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Women gave voice. They were the first to give voice to, I think he's alive. He is alive. I've seen him. Before the men, before the disciples saw and witnessed for themselves, Jesus is turning the world upside down, even in this one regard of how inclusive he is of women, how he equates women to men. And now Matthew follows suit in the writing of the beginning of the the story of Christmas, When he says this, and he includes five women in the list of Jesus' ancestors, and it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that he would do this. And I want to get to a point that relates to the God who comes into the darkness of this world. This is the gene. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy. If you're thinking, oh, thank God, well, me too. But uh, I'm going to read the relevant part of this this morning. Which actually is why this genealogy matters so much. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Isn't it interesting the New Testament begins this way? The greatest story to ever impact our planet. It's reversing everything. Everything can be made new because of if this is true, everything is moving towards the renewal from brokenness and ugly to beauty and good and whole and he begins with this list. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Not only does this genealogy ground Jesus as very historical and factual and these are real people in real places, and this is the actual lineage of Jesus, which, which Matthew is first and foremost saying this is a credible beginning of a very real story. But he intentionally includes these five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. So, just quickly... Let's look at this list. Tamar. Tamar deceives her father-in-law, Jacob, into sleeping with her. Uh, I don't think anything more needs to be said about the idea of incest in our day. Man, in ancient Hebrew culture, this makes you so unclean, it's almost as if you become equated to an animal rather than a person, a human. This is disgusting. This is spiritually speaking, you are so far from the image of God and who God created you to be when you not only practice, but you connive and deceive the way Tamar did. And Matthew's telling us Tamar is a great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. Rahab, in the early pages of of Joshua, the story of Joshua, Rahab is... She is a gender outsider. In Jewish culture, it's men only. Men give credibility. Lineages are always men. Not only is Rahab a female that Matthew is referring to, she's a prostitute. And she's a Canaanite. She's not even an insider to the people of Israel. She's a Canaanite woman, and she receives the the Jewish spies, the Hebrew spies who've come to spy Jericho and, and the promised land, and she, her language is, we all have gods. We have gods in our city, but there's something different about your God. I know the stories. He rescued you through the Red Sea. And Rahab's language suggests, I want to be part of the story of the real God. I want to be included in the the family of the real God, and the invitation. God invites her to become part of his family. There's so much we could say about her being a a racial, ethnic outsider, the people of God, a gender outsider. But she's a prostitute. Then we come to Bathsheba. Listen to the language, if we could put this on the screen again. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, David... The father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why does Matthew use this language? Why not? If you don't know the story, you would just think, well, why not just use, he's using all these names. Why, why say Uriah's wife? Why not just say Bathsheba? Because Matthew is intentionally drawing our attention back to the story of Uriah and his wife. You would think, oh, David, this is, this is something to be proud of. Jesus descends from royalty. Jesus is descending from King David. That's credible. That's not why Matthew includes David here. Matthew is recalling intentionally the story of David and one of his close friends, one of his mighty warriors, Uriah, and Uriah's wife. When Uriah is at war battling for his friend and his king, David, David sees Uriah's wife. He desires her, sleeps with her. And then as king and representative of God and the worship leader of Israel has his moral, moral failure of not only being with his friend's wife, but then devising a way to have Uriah killed in battle so that Bathsheba could be his. And Matthew uses the language. He doesn't just say, oh, and David, the father of Solomon the son of Bathsheba, and go on the list, he intentionally uses this language. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. If you know the story, every time you read that, every time you hear that, you think, oh, that's the story of Uriah being killed by David so he could have his wife. And Bathsheba is a great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. What's happening here? This is some kind of sordid soap opera that Matthew is painting. Why is he doing this? He's recalling with each name and generation embarrassing stories of unclean people. People making horrid decisions. (laughs) Wrecking the legacy of their family. Jeopardizing the legitimacy of their belonging in the family of God or Israel. How is it that Matthew isn't, like, tweaking this? Why isn't he just skipping these stories or maybe every couple generations? Why does he seem to be highlighting these specific instances? It's because from the very start of the Christmas story, Matthew and John and all the writers and eyewitnesses Record keepers of the life of Jesus are drawing our attention to the very first truth of the reality of God coming into our world. This world is dark and not just some kind of relative meaning of darkness. The world can be challenging sometimes. This place is dark, this place is messed up. And Jesus came into the middle of broken humanity. He comes from the stories of brokenness. The one who finally is going to reverse human behavior in decision-making, in selfishness versus selflessness. Something new. This light is coming into what darkens all of us. And as much as we want to criticize prostitutes and what? Bathsheba is included? We... Let's just be careful. And let's think about our own immediate family and our own immediate decision-making and maybe even just our own personal generation and some of the regrets or some of the guilt that we've carried or some of the shame that maybe if it became known or if some biographer was writing about your life or my life, would, would one of those big, big regrettable moments be mentioned? Jesus came into a dark world And the darkness permeates everyone. It's all of us. It's even in every single person in the lineage that Jesus comes from. This is intentional. He comes into our mess. He comes into our selfishness. And every single person needs the grace and work and beauty of God to reverse us from the inside out, to begin this movement of trying to elevate myself, trying to battle my own anxieties, to being free to think about others and confident about a future that is good and beautiful. And I get to live, I I actually can influence people toward a different kind of future because of what Jesus has worked in me. We are equally broken. We are equally lost. We are equally in a dark world. And as much as you want to blame the other political party, and as much as you want to blame your previous boss, and the university you chose, the professor that you didn't expect to have, and the friend that betrayed you, as much as we want to blame and point to, well, this, my life is where it is today because this person, or because my, family, or my father, or my mother. The reality is that our world is broken. We are inextricably caught and trapped in a dark world. And something from the outside must come. Rescue from somewhere else must arrive. And Matthew begins so intentionally to say, it's not just the Canaanites. It's not just the Moabites who are far from God and live in darkness. This story of darkness is embedded in every single one of us. Jewish, Gentile, male, female. Your neighbor and in your house. And our God didn't give up and he didn't go to another universe to start over. He didn't come to float in the clouds and preach damnation to us. He came and made his dwelling among the adultery In the conniving ways that we can take out our enemy. In the financial lack of integrity. In the bullying. In the hate. In the gossip. Because it makes humans feel better about themselves to talk about their neighbor. And now we can do that behind the anonymous screen of social media. Jesus came into our darkness to begin reversing in you and in me. It begins with us. With light and hope and beauty and a different way of looking at people, a different way of looking at your enemies, a different way of looking at your past and your own brokenness. This is what he means by light. Matthew does not give us a story of good advice, he gives us good news. We're going to talk about this in the series in the weeks ahead. Good advice is telling you what to do. It's telling you how you should course correct. Good news is the announcement of something that's happened for you. And the gospel writers, that word gospel, good news, this is great, significant news. It's, it's not even a moral to the story. Matthew's not telling you, In the Christmas story, hey, you need to clean up your life. You need to, if you go to church and kneel and stand and kneel, and if you pray this certain prayer, he's not telling you there's a moral to the story and you need to act and do something. He's telling us what God has done. Christmas is the story of what our God has done to actually begin shattering and changing and reversing darkness into light, ultimately the garden again. We're moving again back toward what we all crave. No disease, no hurt, no more tears. The last thing in my notes say, dear God, you've come close. We no longer have to say, God, please see my pain. God, please try to make sense out of this. Where are you? When will you show up? But God, you have already come close. You chose to come into the ugly and hurt and filthy and embarrassment of our darkness, this dark world. You chose, Jesus, to come into my darkness, my filthy, my regrets, my shame. And so this morning, here at the beginning of this This season that we devote to your birth, we ask you, we invite you to have control of our lives. Jesus, I give you my life. Maybe you've prayed something similar to this in the past, and maybe life has become a struggle or maybe you've kind of lost your way, or maybe you've never actually prayed these words, Jesus... I give you my life, all of it. I'm giving you my finances. I'm giving you my career, my relationships, my broken marriage, my friendships, my kids, my parenting. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my life that your light can begin the work of restructuring, reframing, changing the trajectory. The way I think, about myself, about others. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my darkness. I love you, church family, so much.